Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Scripture reading this morning is going to be 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 27 through the first three verses of chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning at verse 27. We pray and ask for God's blessing upon the reading and the preaching of His Word here this morning. Father, this is Your Word. It is that imperishable seed by which we have been born again. And it is that pure spiritual milk by which we grow up in our salvation. And so we ask, Father, that Your Spirit would attend to the preaching and the reading of the Word here this morning. Father, may You cause it to go forth with boldness and with clarity and with faithfulness. And may You cause it uh, to bear much fruit in the lives uh, of our people, Father, as we uh, go forth into this community. May we be a light on a hill, Father, causing others to see our good works and give glory to Your name. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning at verse 27. Listen to this. This is the very Word of God. Now you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administering, and various kinds of tongues. Are all prophets? Are all apostles? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. That is the reading of God's Word. Last Sunday we looked at these same verses, and last Sunday our focus was on the first half of verse 31. Look again at Paul's instructions there. He says, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. And when we looked at those words, the first thing we noticed is that this is a command that, that Paul is not simply describing what happens to be the case. He is, he is not simply saying that the Corinthians happen to desire the higher gifts, but rather he is instructing them to desire the higher gifts. He is, he is telling them that they ought to desire the higher gifts. And after noticing that this was a command, that this is something that ought to be done, we said, well, if we're going to do it, we need to know what are these higher gifts that Paul is talking about. And we found our answer to that question in his earlier discussion of spiritual gifts. What would Paul call the higher gifts? Well, well, given what he has said to this point in chapter 12, we can be fairly certain that Paul would regard as the higher gifts, as the, the better gifts, as some translations put it, as those gifts which most glorify the name of Jesus Christ and those which do the most good for His people. After all, that's what the Spirit is about. That's what His spiritual gifts are for. The, the Spirit, at his, at his very essence, is a Spirit who exalts the Lordship of Christ. And He gives gifts to His church that they might build one another up in a maturity that exalts that Lordship, that, that magnifies the glory of His name. And so, the higher gifts 
are those gifts which, which allow us most to magnify the glory of Christ and to serve the good of His people. And so with that definition in mind, with that understanding of the higher gifts in mind, we ask, well, well, why would Paul want us to desire those gifts? Why would he tell us to desire the gifts that, that most allow us to glorify Christ and to serve His people? And the conclusion we came to is that Paul wants us to desire these gifts because Paul recognizes that it is good for Christians to desire to do great things. It is good for Christians to desire to do the most that they can for the glory of their Lord. It is good for Christians to desire to do the most that they can for the good of their neighbors. Christians ought not be content to do the minimum required. We we ought not to live by a minimum ethic. But rather, our passion, our, our strong desire, ought to be to do as much as we can with the resources at our disposal and the opportunities that He affords. We, we ought to do, desire to do as much as we can for the glory of our Lord. We ought to desire to do as much as we can for the good of His church. As we heard it said last week, we ought to desire to do great things for God. And therefore, if we desire to do great things, if it's good and right for us to desire to to have our life count for something great, then we ought to desire the greater gifts that, that allow us to do the most with the opportunities that we have. But notice, no sooner has Paul said this, no sooner has Paul told us to desire the higher gifts, but he says, but... I will show you a still more excellent way. If you want to do great things, if you want to magnify the glory of your Lord as much as you possibly can, it's good to desire gifts, Paul says. Gifts are are helpful. Gifts are good. But there's something even better. There is an even more excellent way for your life to count for the glory of God. There is an even more excellent way for you to give your life for the good of His church. And of course, that more excellent way is the way of love. He says, yes, gifts are good, but love is better. Gifts are are helpful. They they help us to serve the, the good of His church. They help us to serve the good of His people. But there is something even better. And that something better is the way of love. And so Paul is going to, in chapter 13, he's going to expound for us the way of love. He is going to, to show us what love is. He's going to show us what love does. But before he gets into love itself, he's going to take three verses here at the beginning of chapter 13 to explain to us, to help us understand why love is the more excellent way, why love surpasses even gifts in bringing glory to God and bringing good to His people. And so this morning, we are going to look at, at the three phrases that we have there in verses 1 through 3. The, the three elements of, of why love is the still more excellent way. So let's begin with the first thing that Paul says there in chapter first thing. He begins by saying, If I speak in the tongue of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, I wonder what you hear when you hear those words. They're, they're familiar words. They're, they're words we've, we've probably heard read many, many times. And I have to tell you that when I hear those words read, my, my first instinct is to say, well, Paul is saying uh, that, that 
Tongues without love is just noise. He's just, he's just making noise. But there are some people, maybe they're drummers, I'm not sure, but they, they don't like that. They, they don't like this reducing clanging cymbals and, and, and gongs to, to just noise. And so they want to argue that, listen, cymbals were, were part of Old Testament worship. We see it in, in Psalm 150. Think about the words of, of that psalm. He says, praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. And then it begins to list for us the ways that we ought to praise Him. The instruments that we ought to use. And it says, praise Him with the trumpet sound. Praise Him with the lute and the harp. Praise Him with the tambourine and dance. Praise Him with strings and pipe. And then... Lo and behold, it says, praise Him with sounding cymbals and praise Him with loud, crashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And we know that that cymbals were actually used when when David uh, worshipped God uh, on the day when the ark was brought in uh, to Jerusalem. And so, Symbols are, are part of Old Testament worship. And so therefore, some commentators see this and they say, well, Paul cannot be saying that, that symbols are just noise. They are, they are part of worship. And that's a little bit persuasive, but I still think he's saying just noise. All right? Because let me explain. Even here in Psalm 150, all of those instruments are, are listed together. And, and symbols help. They support. They, they, they add to. But by themselves, apart from the other instruments... They don't make full music. And by themselves, they don't play the melody. In fact, that's one of the things that Paul's going to say music does. Music plays distinct notes. And then it communicates a message. And when you have tongues without love, it's reduced to just noise. It's something that can be used to the glory of God. It's something that cannot can be used in, in the worship of our king. It's something that can be used to exalt Christ's glory and to, to bring good to his, his people. But when they are exercised without love, they become just noise. It just becomes noise. And so God can use it, sort of like the way he used the, the Babylonians in the Old Testament. Remember the, the Babylonians? These were people that God used to accomplish his, his purposes. He used the Babylonians in order to, to punish Israel for their, their sins. But, but no one would say that, that God delighted in or was pleased with the, the Babylonians. Because the Babylonians themselves acted without love. And so therefore, while they were doing God's work, they themselves were punished for what they did because they did it without Love. And so God can use something, but if it's exercised without love, it becomes just noise. And that's exactly what, what Paul is, is getting at here when he, when he speaks about tongues without love. In fact, he says tongues are, are particularly um, susceptible to this. Tongues are particularly susceptible because when someone speaks in tongues, they're speaking in a language that they do not know. And if, and if they're just doing it to, to show off there's no chance that their words are going to profit anybody else because no one else knows what's going on. No one else understands the, the, the language. And so he says, listen, he says, when you use tongues, you have to be especially careful to make sure that they are used in such a way that they serve the good of the church, that they exalt Christ and not yourself. And so, especially in Corinth, there, this warning was necessary that tongues without love are just, Noise, but of course it applies to other gifts as well. We can see that, that it's, it's not just tongues that can be used without love. In fact, notice what Paul does next. 
Paul starts with tongues because that was the the point of contention in in Corinth. But but no sooner has Paul said that that tongues without love are just noise than notice the gifts that he lists next. Because he doesn't just pick on tongues. He says in verse 2, and if I have, what? Prophetic powers. And if I have understanding of all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have faith so as to remove mountains. So he starts with tongues and says, tongues without love is no good. Tongues without love does not exalt the Lordship of Christ. Tongues without love does not not serve the good of his people. But then he says, but just in case you think I'm picking on tongues, let me list the the gifts that I put first. He says, prophetic powers without without love? It's it's nothing. The the, the understanding of all mysteries and all knowledge without love, it's, it's nothing. The faith to remove mountains without love. He says the person who has such faith is nothing. And so it's not just tongues, but it's, it's these, even these higher gifts, as Paul would call them. These higher gifts without love still are nothing. In fact, it's not just that the gifts are nothing, but the person who has them are nothing. Now that's, that's, that's pretty weighty. What does he mean when he says that the person with, without, who, who exercises these gifts without love is, is nothing? He's, he's almost certainly talking about nothing in the, in the estimation of God. He's saying, listen, God does not regard that person as, as, a, as a good and faithful servant. God does not, does not regard that person as blessed. It is not a gracious thing in God's sight to, to use gifts without Love, because gifts can be, can be distributed even, even to non-Christians. Saul was among the prophets. Gifts can be exercised even by donkeys. Balaam's donkey was was used to to speak the words of of God. In fact, Jesus himself says, listen, there will be many on that day who say, we prophesied in your name and we did other miraculous things in your name. And he will say, away from me, I never knew you. So it is not the exercise of gifts alone that makes someone great in the eyes of God, that, that makes someone beloved in the eyes of God, that, that, that makes someone a, a good and faithful servant of the Lord. It's not the gift itself. The gift itself can be used without love, and when it's used without love, it is of no benefit. And so that raises a, a significant question. Alright? If, if, if the gift of tongues and even the gift of prophecy and the gift of knowledge and the, and the gift of, of faith, if all of these gifts are nothing without love, we, we have to ask ourselves, okay, then well, what's, what's love? <laughs> what, what, is, what is this love that, that Paul is talking about? And I think he begins to address that question in verse 3. Notice what he says. He says, if I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I, gain, uh, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Now you've probably heard it said before that, that love is a verb. You heard that? You, you recognize what that means? Love is a verb, people say. What do they mean when they say that? They, well, you know, love is an action. It's something that we do. It's not just a, it's not just a feeling. Well, we've, we've heard that, and I, and I think we understand what people mean when they say that. And there is something, there's a grain of truth there to say you know, that, that love is a verb, that love is an action, that it's not merely a, a feeling. There's, there's truth in that. In fact, John says something like that in his first letter. Think about what the Apostle John writes. He says, but if anyone 
has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us love in, uh, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. So simply to say, well, you know, I love you. I wish you the best. I hope God blesses you. I hope things go well for you. You know, that's not love if it's not accompanied by action, Paul said, or John says. He says, listen, to, to, to have the world's goods and to not actually do something with those goods, to, to relieve the suffering of your brother, to help your, your brother when he is in need, is not love. That is not God's love. And so we say, okay, God's love is expressed in actions. But look what's going on in verse 3 here. This person is giving away all they have. In fact, they are even giving up their body to be burned. They are not only sacrificing their goods, they are sacrificing their very life. And yet, Paul says that those things, the the giving of goods, the giving even of your life, can be done without love. And so while John teaches us that that Christian love is something more than mere words, it's something more than just a mere feeling, you know, a warm and fuzzy uh, attitude towards somebody... While it's more than that, the actions themselves are not love. In fact, in the Old Testament, God's prophets would would regularly tell the people of Israel that that they were going through the motions. They were doing the the right things. They were worshiping God with their lips, but their hearts were far from Him. Love is something that engages the heart. Love is emotional. That's hard for Presbyterians to admit. You know, we, we, we struggle with that a little bit. But, but love engages the heart. And so what, what, what Paul is telling us here is that there is a way to do good that is still un, unloving, telling us that, that love is something more than just the performance of certain actions. It's more than just doing certain things on a, on a checklist. And he says, and if you don't have... If you don't have love, if you don't have that something more, then your actions gain you nothing. They are not a gracious thing in the sight of God. They are not going to receive God's commendation of well done, good and faithful servant. They are not going to receive His invitation to come and to to participate in His his joy. They they, they gain you nothing. So what is this love that, that he's talking about? Well, he's going to spend the, uh, the, the rest of the, the chapter unpacking it for us. And we're going to spend you know, the next several weeks, the next maybe several months, unpacking it ourselves as, as we look at what this love is. But we can, we can begin with this sort of introductory definition that, that love is a sincere and earnest desire for the good of another person that moves us to act in their best interests. You know, it's this, it's this sincere and earnest desire and delight in and, and joy in the good of another that moves us to act in such a way as to bless them, in such a way as to bring about their good, even before our own good. Even when it is to our own harm. We, we love when we move to bless another, move to, to bring good to another, even when it costs us. You see, you can give generously and it not be love if, if you're giving out of selfish motives. If you're, if you're giving and, uh, just simply to, to sort of buy your way into heaven or giving to sort of earn praise for yourselves among men or, or giving to just assuage your, your conscience. You can give for all kinds of, of reasons that are not 
love. And God, what God loves is the cheerful giver. What God loves is the, the loving giver. The, 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 the giving that comes out of the overflow of a heart that delights in the good of its neighbor. That's what we are being called to. Paul says that is the most excellent way. If you truly want your life to count for something great, if you truly want to exalt the, the glory of your king, love like that. How does that make you feel <laughs> when you hear that? You hear, oh, all you got to do is love. I sometimes hear people say, you know, I'm so glad that I live in the New Testament era because in the Old Testament, you know, it was so complicated. There were so many rules and there were regulations about what you could wear and about what you could touch and about what you could eat. In the New Testament, all we have to do is love. It's just so much more simple. I'm so glad I live in the New Testament. Have you ever, have you ever heard someone speak that way? Usually what they mean is that they're, they're, they're giving the idea that somehow God has lowered the bar. He's, he's simplified things in the New Testament. I think I know what they mean, but that's ridiculous. Really? Love is, is lowering the bar? You clearly don't understand what Paul or, or what Jesus or what anybody else in the New Testament means when they, when they call us to love. I mean, I mean, think about it this way. I mean, Paul says, listen, it's not enough to tithe. It's not even enough to give away everything. You have to do it with love. You have to do it with that genuine concern for your, for your neighbor. And so love is not a lowering of the standard. If anything, it's a hiring of the standard. No one reads Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and says, Whew, I'm glad, you know, I'm glad he, he made that a little easier. No, because he's like, listen, this is what the law requires. This is the true fulfillment. It is, it is love. Love for God and love for neighbor. And so the question we're left with is simply this. How in the world are we going to do this? Isn't that the question you're asking? You're like, okay, Paul, you've told us. Here's the most excellent way. Here's how your life can count. Love. And you're like, really? How? How can I possibly do that? I, I wanted something doable. You know, you know, at least... At least the commandments are, are, are somewhat doable. You know, Paul told us that when, when he looked at the first nine commandments, you know, he, could, he had them objectified. He had them sort of on a list, and he said, I can do that. But then when the tenth commandment started addressing his heart and started requiring his heart to be engaged and for his heart to be pure, he said, that's when I began to be convicted of sin. That's when I began to know myself to be a sinner. And it's the same here. When, when we begin to say it's not just doing certain things, it's not just using certain gifts in the service of the church or in the service of His people, but it is truly loving. It is then that we are exposed. It is then that we begin to say, how can this be? So how do we learn to love this way? How, how do we begin to, to be marked by this type of love? I think if we go back to verse 31 we can find our answer. Notice again, verse 31, that, those first words there. He says, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. Now what's implied in that command? We are to desire the, the higher gifts. Well, if you desire the higher gifts, what are you going to do about it? Where do these gifts come from? They, they, they come 
from the Holy Spirit. And so if you are desiring the higher gifts, what are you going to do? You're going to ask God, you're going to ask the Holy Spirit to to give you this gift, to pour out this gift upon you, that that you might use this gift to the praise of His his glory. And so the, the earnestly desire higher gifts is a call to pray. It's a call to ask God for the gifts that you desire, that you might use them in the service of His church. But then immediately... Paul says, but there's an even more excellent way, and that is the way of love. Well, think about what that that flow of thought means. That flow of thought means that if you were supposed to ask God for the higher gifts, and if there's something something even better that you are supposed to desire than than gifts, and that's love, then, then does it not follow that we pursue love by asking God for love? God, do this in me. If you you look at your own heart and you say, my love is so small, my love is so cold, I struggle so much. Ask God. Because the reality is, if you are aware at all of what love is, you will recognize that you struggle. We can't do this for one day. We can't make it to lunch. In fact, I sometimes don't make it out of bed before selfish thoughts are already in my head and I'm already putting my own interests before others and and wondering why I'm not first and why not everything in the universe serves me. Have you ever been there? You're just like, why doesn't the universe serve me? That's what we do when we are getting mad about all the things that go against our agenda and our our plan. And we're saying, you know, listen, I ought to be supreme. I ought to be preeminent. What's going on, God? You're not treating me fair. And the moment those thoughts flood into our mind, we're no longer loving. We are falling short. We are falling woefully short of the glory of God. We don't make it to breakfast in our endeavors to to love. And so we need God to come and we need God to begin a work of transformation. So we have to go and we have to pray. And, you know, this is the way Paul prays. Paul prays this way for the Philippians. His his prayer for the Philippians is that God would cause their love to abound more and more with knowledge and, and all discernment so that they might be able to know what is excellent and might be able to bring forth in abundance the fruits of righteousness that come through Jesus Christ to the praise of His name. That's the way Paul prayed. It's the way we ought to be praying for for one another. God, cause our love to abound. Bring forth this type of love in abundance. But even as we pray that way, we have to recognize that that God works through means. God works through through means. And so God can drop manna out of heaven if He wants to give us our daily bread, or He can raise up a farmer and a miller and a baker and a a store clerk, and, and He can provide us with our bread that way. And we know from experience that He more often works through means. And so how is God going to work this love in us? Well, there are all kinds of clues in the New Testament. Maybe the clearest comes again in in John's letter when he says, listen, we love because He first loved us. He says we meditate upon God's love for us in Christ. It's as as we let His love for us dwell richly in our hearts. It's as we allow it to renew our minds that our lives are transformed and that we are set free to love. It's as we see the beauty of His love for us that we are conformed more and more to the image of that love. It's what Paul says in in Corinthians. He says, listen, it's as we behold His glory, 
that we are conformed into the image of that glory from one degree to another. So how do we learn to love? We learn to love by meditating upon the love that has been shown to us. You see, we don't work love up on our own and, and bring it to God, but rather we, we respond to God's love with love. It says His love flows into us that it will overflow to others. And so our prayer is that God would give us eyes to see. That He would open our eyes to the wonders of who God is and who Christ is and what He's done for us. In fact, that's Paul's prayer in Ephesians. He says, God, open their eyes. Open the eyes of their hearts that they might know and that they might know You. That they might know the glory of the inheritance that is theirs in Christ. That they might know the immeasurable power that is at work in them. And then as he he brings that prayer to a conclusion, as Paul does after a long parenthesis in chapter 3, he finishes it this way, that they might know the love of God for them in Christ. Open their eyes that they might know God's love. That they might know God's love. Why? Well, the very beginning of the next chapter says, so that you might live lives worthy of the calling that you have received with love for one another as you dwell together in unity. And so it's as we see and as we dwell upon, as we meditate upon the glory of God's love for us in Christ that we will be enabled more and more to love. And so over the course of the the next few months, we're going to be studying what love is. And as we go, we're going to be trying to see these first in Christ. Say, how has God loved us this way in Christ? And then how does that set us free to love others? And I invite you to, to take the journey with me as we meditate upon Christ's love for us. That we might learn to love one another. Yes, gifts are great and we want to be gifted. But above all else, we want to be a people marked by love. We want to be a people who love one another well because Jesus said that's how they will know that we are His disciples as we love one another. And so over the course of the next months, we will see Christ's love for us, that we might learn to love one another, that others might see us and be drawn to Him. And because God works in those mysterious ways, and because God can make people even like us, people of love, that is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Believe with me. Father God, we do rejoice in Your goodness. And we... Rejoice in this promise, Father, that You will bring forth in us love. Father, we know how much we struggle. And so we, in desperation, call upon You, Father. Make us people of love that we might bring honor and glory to Your name and good to Your people. This is what we ask above all else. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.